welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, a show that brings readers and writers together. I'm Marva Hinton. Today I'm at the Miami Book Fair with our guest, Jane Allison. She's written three novels, a memoir, and a translation of Ovid's stories. Her latest book, Nine Island, was published in September. You can find out how to win a free signed copy of Nine Island on our website, readmorepodcast.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Jane, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really happy to be here. Nine Island is about a middle-aged woman identified as Jay who's living in a high-rise on Miami Beach called Nine Island. She's working on a translation, or she says a transmutation, of Ovid's stories. She's just spent a month with an old boyfriend she calls Sir Gold from out of state. While she hoped that this would rekindle their romance, it didn't work out that way. In the end, he rejected her, and now she's contemplating whether or not she should be done with love. You have described Nine Island as a nonfiction novel, or a semi-imagined memoir. What does that mean exactly? Well, that what that means is by the time I started writing this, I had written three novels and a memoir, and I had actually translated Ovid's stories of sexual change. And when I began writing this, I knew that I was tired of some of the conventions of fiction. I did not want to create plot. What I had found fascinating about the memoir was working with things that were true, that had happened, and trying to find sense and create form for those. And I also wanted um, something that was a little bit more fluid, like, like I had done in the poetry translations. So nonfiction novel in this case means almost everything that happens in the book and the the figures who appear in it are based um, extremely closely on, on reality, and I just played a little bit with form and did some compression. So is that the major difference then between this book and your previous, uh, your traditional memoir about your childhood? Uh, that The difference would be that in that memoir, I felt a great duty to be truthful to certain people here. I was being truthful to incidents, uh, which I was also doing in the memoir, but I did have some liberty to um, compress some characters and compress some time. So I was trying to understand how things that had happened involving, say, an old cat and my mother and my own uh, self and body and relationships and a friend in the building and something that happens to the building, they all felt related in my mind and I wanted to figure out how by giving it a kind of narrative form that still allowed me some flexibility. Was there any trepidation at all in writing this? Because in reading it, it just feels so personal. I'm afraid I'm missing that gene. And when I'm writing it, I'm writing it completely what I have to write and then only later do I worry when I when I'm giving a reading and I thought oh my god am I actually going to read that aloud no not I'm not going to read that aloud so I have to say no um and it is it's on I do feel bad if if someone who I've sort of modeled a figure on very closely isn't happy with the result and that does cause me um a little pain and I regret that but that doesn't happen very much so regarding exposing my own self I figure if I'm doing that um that's the least I can do if I'm also going to be including other people Well, you use initials or titles for the majority of the characters. Why did you decide to do that? Was that a way to protect yourself, protect other people? Uh, Was it, I I just wonder, you know, when I was reading, I was wondering why you made that choice. Um, I think that I did that. The initials are one thing, and I think I did not want conventional names because they gave the thing a, a sort of more 
common feeling, I suppose, and I wanted things to be a little bit suspended and in her imaginary or imagining mind. Um, so when she calls the old lover, the kind of love of her life, Sir Gold, it's obviously a silly name and it just meant to show how enormously valuable he was to her. And when she calls another old lover, the devil, um, you can figure that out. And uh, and so I think I wanted to heighten their presence and, and elevate them beyond the um, the idea of some real person. I wanted them to be all a little bit suspended, a little bit um, saturated with her imagination. Well, I noticed that there were a few characters, sort of, I guess we call them minor characters here, where you did give them names, like Virgil, the security guard. And I was wondering, was that supposed to convey that you know, this person obviously is not as close to you, so I will give him a name? Well, Virgil the security guard is actually based on Virgil the security guard, and his name really is is Virgil. And I couldn't resist it because it's a beautiful name, but also because Ovid is in the book. And so we have two of the main classical Roman writers there. Um, And so I just thought, if I have passages about Ovid, and here I've actually got a live Virgil, I'm going to go with Virgil. Your narrator spends a lot of time looking at herself as if to find a problem as to why she was unsuccessful in love. But in reality, in you know, reading it for me, it seems like she was surrounded by a bunch of jerks. I mean, the Sir Gold, uh, just awful behavior um, toward the narrator. And in the book, she calls these guys deadbeats because she said they made her go dead. Have any of your readers recognized themselves in the book? Yes, most of them have actually. <laughs> um, and I have to say for Sir Gold, I don't think he behaved horribly. He's just incapable of love, I would say. Um, Sir Gold has recognized himself. The devil has recognized himself. A few others have recognized themselves. Um, I mean, my mother is also in the book, actually. She knows who she is, and she sure recognizes herself, um, although she disputes a few things. Um, but I call them deadbeats as, a, as another kind of joke because she also calls, um, you know, no one is actually a deadbeat in the technical term of a deadbeat, like a deadbeat dad or something. They're just deadbeats to her because they just t- so disappointed her as, as men or as lovers. And she even calls a plant a deadbeat at one point. So it's a pretty loosely used term. Nine Island is made up of very short chapters, and it often feels like stream of consciousness or poetry. As you mentioned before, you were wanting to sort of play with some of the forms you did when you were doing translation. Why did you choose to structure this book this way? When I began writing it, like I, like I said a minute ago, I just was fed up with, I just couldn't stomach um, plotting and kind of conventional structures. And I had written an early draft of it with big, long chapters and heavy, thick paragraphs, and I just could not breathe. And so I, I just wanted something that was more aerial and more light and more quick and that sort of shows the, the, the flickering of one's moods. And, um, you know, your mind moves directions all the time and what you're seeing changes all the time. And I wanted to capture that kind of way of perceiving the world and being in the world. And I had been reading some writers I really admire, like Mary Robeson, um, and well, just let's just stick with Mary Robeson. And I really admired the way she was able to create something that was um, cogent and 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 in one piece and moving, but made out of these little wild sharp pieces. Um, this is her book. Um, Why did I ever? Well, isolation is a topic that you really explore in depth here in this novel. Your narrator worries that she's isolating herself, and at times it troubles her that her life primarily revolves around her work and her ailing cat. But then there are other times that she seems to feel content despite the protest of her mom and her friend Kay. 
what intrigues you about solitude and writing about that? That's a good question. Um, She's trying to figure out, um, as I was and and maybe still am, you know, why it is that we have this idea that you were meant to be with another person. It just seems like a a, a real... um, um, such an expectation that can be that can lead to such devastation if you're not doing it if you just actually are more content by yourself you have friends and so on but so she's trying to sort out kind of the mathematics of it like well why is it that that's the expectation and it can oh, it can become very disappointing and it can not lead to some romantic ideal so she's trying to just think it through while um, you know feeling of course that something's wrong if she's not with someone even though she's turned away quite a few of the people that there were um, but she's also just um, trying to re- come to terms with the fact that, you know, you come into the world alone, you're going to end alone, you really are alone, and there can be a great deal of pleasure in in having the kinds of relations that can exist through literature or through, um, you know, different kinds of communication or being with people than the standard pairings. Your narrator is really drawn to animals. You know, from her blind incontinent cat Buster to the duck that she tries to rescue for weeks and weeks. What is it about caring for animals that was so appealing to her? Um, well, let's see. This goes back to the nonfiction property of the book, and, and that, those things were going on with the poor old cat and the, and the duck that actually was stranded for months and I, and I took care of. Um, I, th- I think it's that you can be someone who may not be strictly engaged in another romantic relationship with another person, but you can still have a lot of love and, and caring in you, and it's it's good to care for things, and it it's the right thing to do to care for things that need caring. She's trying to care for her mother, too, and then she meets this woman in the building who was a nurse who tries to care for many things, including this narrator herself. As the novel progresses, your narrator begins to see Ovid in everything. She relates his stories to news stories about missing young women who turn up dead and things she observes with her neighbors. Do you think this just comes when you immerse yourself in your work? Yes, I think it's true. Whenever you write any, or whenever I've written anything, um, whether it's fiction or not, I, it, it becomes the um, screen through which I'm seeing everything, and it can it can be a little bit um, ridiculous because if I'm writing a say about someone who's jealous, then I will probably foist upon some poor person all my jealousy. Um, in this case, I first read Ovid when I was 19, and I read these stories when I was 19, which was quite a while ago. And they did help form my way of seeing young people and relations and bodies and, and, and sexual interaction. So they've kind of been, I, I think I call Ovid my, uh, my guide through the land of love from the, from the very beginning. Um, so once you read someone like Ovid and you see figures transforming into other things in a logical way that, that reflects a deep sort of logic and, and essence of a person, it's hard not to have everything transfigured in your in your life. Everything is a little bit defamiliarized where you see, you know, a fish that looks like a bird or a tree that looks like a girl. Things do seem more, more fluid. Your narrator is always spying on people from her apartment. Is that just part of being a writer, being observant, studying others' behavior? That's definitely part of it. Um, also, she lives in a building where she has the opportunity to see other people in the building right across the way in Costa Brava, which makes me think of things like Rear Window and you know great texts like that. Um, but it's also she wants to um, disappear a little bit and can do that by being absorbed in what other people are doing for a time. Everyone lies in this novel, 
That's something that your narrator is constantly pointing out. Yet the narrator herself feels pretty reliable. Are there things that she's lying to herself about or to the reader? No, I don't think so. I think I think that when she she's trying to convince herself that it's okay to be alone. I mean, at a certain point, she's I think she's pretty much in a closet in in the darkness during a storm, clutching her poor old cat, saying, you know, it's okay if you take care of a cat and a duck and a mother, and you have some friends who write to you, um, and you and you have a fantasy life that's adequate, then that's all you need. And I think anyone reading it will say, this is looking sad. <laughs> this is looking sad right now. But I think we know that she's trying to convince herself, and so she's not actually lying. So what are you working on right now? I am mostly teaching because that's what my job is, but I am, I've got a new book that I'm working on this summer, uh, which is a um, kind of a craft book, and it's called The Art of Patterning, and it's going to be examining a, um, a bunch of stories and books of different genres that rely on things other than plot and the dramatic arc to create cogency and, and motion. Okay, well, let's just switch gears right now and talk a little bit about your reading life. Uh, what was the first thing you read that really touched you deeply? Oh, I mean, that would go back to when I was a little kid. It would be, I'm Australian originally, and this wonderful series, uh, which has a silly name called Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie. <laughs> so these are, actually this connects to Ovid, these are beautifully illustrated books from the 30s, I think, um, about these uh, uh, Australian um, creatures. Half of them are animal and half are plant, and it's a highly populated and magical world of, um, of Australian flora and fauna. Well, if you could no longer read any new work and you could only read books you've read in the past um, and you were limited to three, which three would you choose? I don't have to answer that. Um, which three, since I teach, I'm often rereading books that I think are really important anyway, so I think I'm going to be lazy and going to call on some of those that I find really crucial. Um, and one is Marguerite Draws the Lover, and one is Sabal's The Emigrants, and why don't we throw Lolita in there too? Now, on the flip side of those books that you enjoy and you've read over and over, is there a book that you've maybe tried to read several times and have been unable to, or a book maybe you've read, but your reaction to it was different maybe than from the critics and and most readers? Oh my God. Um, Most recently, I tried to read All the Light We Cannot See, and I, I gave up because it felt very plotted and very Hollywood to me, and I, I can't say that's, it's not fair, I did not finish it. Um, I think I find my reading different from the critics so often, I wouldn't even know where to begin with that. So what are you reading right now? Uh, right now I'm reading Hilton Alls's, um, uh kind of critical memoir called The Women. And where can listeners find you online? They can find me on um, Facebook, and they can find my me on my website, janeallisonauthor.com. Well, Jane Allison, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really been a pleasure to sit here and talk to you about Nine Island. Thank you, Marva. It's been really fun. Please go to our website, readmorepodcast.com, to find out how you can win a free signed copy of Nine Island. You can also follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton, reminding you to read more.